Well, hello, everyone. I hope you're having a good day. Welcome to the latest installment of For What It's Worth podcast. My iPhone 12, which is going to be one of our topics here in a minute, uh, is on airplane mode. I just went for about a two-mile just run, run walk uh, to get the blood flowing before I did this, which means now my nose is running. Because it was about 20 degrees this morning here in Santa Fe, the snow is melting off, uh, but it rocketed up into the low 40s today, so it's absolutely gorgeous and sunny. The sun is coming through the windows of the house. It's gorgeous. I've got the blinds down. I'm staring over my right hand, I'm sorry, my left hand, at about 300 photography books that are just sitting there waiting to be exploited. My chess set is in front of me. My wife has some jewelry making materials in front of me. Not bomb making, jewelry making materials. I've got an interesting week. I think I've got some information that might be useful to some of you this week, which I know is rare. Most of the time, what I talk about is complete nonsense. I also have my uh, mate gourd here filled with mate. I am riding, I am blazing high on yerba mate. That stuff has a little bit of a kick, so bear with me. So let's get to it. Who is this podcast for? Well, it's for anyone who is drunk while taking their SAT. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Scholastic Aptitude Test, which is uh, very common here in America, it's the test you take after high school, before you get into college. And if you want to look up the word boondoggle in the dictionary, you could not find a better application, a better description of that word than the SAT, the Scholastic Aptitude Test. Now, I took this test twice. Back when I took it, getting out of high school, it was really no big deal. Uh, most of the time, people didn't really study for it. You just showed up, um, hopefully drunk, in the case of the people who would watch this podcast or listen to this podcast, at least hungover. I mean, I want you to at least be hungover during the uh, SAT. But it was broken into two components. There's like an English slash writing component, and then there's a mathematics component. Now, I am mathematically illiterate, so I knew I was going to suck at that. Um, and I think the top score, I want to say, was 1,600. It might have been 1,400. I honestly don't remember. I know it was somewhere in that range. I think I got an 1,100, which I think is okay. It's not great. But here's the thing about the Scholastic Aptitude Test. It is complete BS. It means nothing to anyone outside of this one little fact that I thought you should know about. In 2019 alone, 2.2 million kids took this test. 2.2 million at 50 to $100 per pop. So we're talking about, what, $100 million for the whoever the organization is that's surrounding this? That's why I'm saying boondoggle. Um, these tests mean nothing. No one ever asked me about these scores. They had no impact on me going to school afterwards. No one in college cared about it. No one asked about it. Uh, it was a complete and total waste of time. Now, apparently, it has gotten even crazier, where kids are going to classes, and there's, there's subclasses and teachers and schemes and plans and plots, and, and apparently people have convinced themselves that a test like this uh, is important. Now, here's the other little wrinkle here. I had friends who aced it, who got literally whatever it was, perfect score, 1,400 or 1,600, whatever it was. They were completely clueless if you let them out of the building. They were book smart beyond your wildest dreams, but they had absolutely no common sense whatsoever. Um, one of these people I know really well, I'm still friends with him, and he is brilliant and basically has gone absolutely nowhere in his life because he has no ability to interact with any other human beings. So he's super cool. I love him. I always will. Um, he's very uh, inspiring to me because he is so intelligent. His brain works in ways, but like he aced the SAT, but really doesn't function well as a member of society. So Take it for what it's worth. But if you were drunk 
just, I mean, blinding, commode-hugging drunk during your SAT, I think you're going to be happy with this podcast. The hero of the week, there's two. Um, the first is Diego Maradona. And for those of you who don't know, or those of you who hate on the sport world or the athletic world, um, Diego Maradona was arguably the most important player of the modern era in soccer, football, if you live anywhere else in the world. Uh, Maradona was Argentinian, and he wasn't, he's tiny. He's like three feet tall. Not really. He's, he's a little taller than that, but he is very, very small, but he's, 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 he's Staka. He's, he's built. He's, he's like a brick. And Maradona played for not only the Argentinian national team, but other teams as well. And he was incredibly flamboyant. Um, he passed away recently. And uh, there's a film on Netflix about, called Maradona in Mexico. Towards the end of his life, he was coaching sort of a, a second-tier team or third-tier team in all places, Culiacan, and a really pretty you know, heavy environment in terms of the narco-traficantes and the, the drug war and everything. But he was a coach there. And Maradona was pretty much beloved everywhere he went. But he got a little bit of a cocaine problem, apparently, after he left uh, being a player. And in fact, in the, narco, in the Maradona in Mexico series, they ask him what his big regret is. And he says, I just wonder who I could have been if I wasn't taking drugs. And so it went from drugs to alcohol. And he um, had some epic meltdowns, public meltdowns towards the latter part of his life. But Maradona, what, the reason I'm putting him as our hero of the week is Football is a is a sport that is critically important to a lot of places in the world that are uh, less fortunate. You know, developing world, third world, second world. And yes, of course, you have the Premier League in Europe, which is first world. But soccer is by far the most universally beloved sport. And Maradona was a guy who gave millions, maybe tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of people inspiration to go out and play. And that's pretty cool. The second hero of the week is the U.S. Postal Service. And the reason I say this, and the Postal Service has taken a beating over the last 20 years, right? Prices go up, service goes down. When I used to go to the post office in LA, it was like you needed a flak jacket and a, and a paramilitary team to get you in and out of the building safely. I saw a guy pee in the corner once at the post office in, in LA. They had bulletproof glass between all the, um, all the postal workers and the public. Most of the time they'd have like six, they were supposed to have like six postal workers behind the plexi. And I'm talking about thick, like three inch plexi. Not it, it wouldn't just stop a handgun round. It would stop an RPG. Like that's how bad these places were. And I remember going into the postal service in LA, a woman beating her child, um, the child taking refuge in a pile of cardboard boxes while she was wailing on him and not a single person, including myself, did anything. It was just too interesting to watch, frankly. And after you're in line that long at the post office, you'll watch pretty much anything. And then I saw another guy pee in the corner. That was interesting. And then um, they always had one teller. They didn't have six. Like they had six slots, but they always had one and people would lose it. So instead of hiring another teller, this was in LA, remember, and instead of hiring a second teller, they, they bought a TV and installed it all the way up at the ceiling in the corner. So you couldn't come anywhere near it. It was like 10 feet off the ground. So you couldn't change the channel. The volume was on top volume. And when I saw the guy peeing in the corner, I happened to look up at the television and it was a film about the plains of Africa. And there was a lion tearing apart like a hyena. And I thought, this is probably the best representation of what it feels like to go to the post office in America. So here in New Mexico, it's a bit different. You can go to the post office. There's no plexi. There's no bulletproof glass. Everybody's cool. You know, they get to know you after a while. But I'm, I'm taking this little hike run here a minute ago. And 
down this dirt road, which, so it snowed about six inches a couple of days ago. And here's what happens when it snows this time of year. Comes in, snows, it's beautiful. The next day, because the storm has now passed through, the sky is clear. So it'll heat up, it'll warm up to about 33, 34 degrees, and everything just starts to melt a little bit. And then it freezes. And it's like 19 degrees this morning. So now there's a sheet of ice on everything. Today it warms up to 43. The ice starts to melt, but then everything turns to mud. So down this little dirt country road comes a postal service truck. And if you don't know the American postal service truck, it is a very odd little vehicle. I don't know who makes it. It's got to be an American brand. It doesn't look like any other vehicle on the road. It is certainly not an off-road vehicle. They're very odd. And here comes one down the road driving what looks like he's in the, the Baja 1000. He is trying to keep this thing from getting stuck. And he's blasting through ice, mud, and snow. And the truck is just covered in dirt and mud, right? And he's looking for addresses and and I looked at this guy, and I was like, man, that's above and beyond. Like, it doesn't matter. We're all sitting here in our nice, comfy, little, cozy places, or you're living in the city, and your postal guy's wearing shorts and a Hawaiian shirt, and he's walking down the street. Not here. I wouldn't be surprised if the postal worker here has a, has a 30 out 6 or 243 lever action or 30-30 lever action Winchester in the back of that van because you get stranded, and who knows who's going to come. It could be a pack of coyotes. It could be some meth head. Who knows? They're probably prepared. And so I just want to tip my hat to them for doing what they do. Okay, that was the hero of the week. Uh, we had who this podcast was for. Scum of the week. This is going to be a consistent player. He's always going to be near the top of the list. He goes above and beyond, proving every week that there is uh, nothing that is as off the table when it comes to being to being a scum, and that is Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, I don't know if you saw this this week or not, but um, Facebook users, the week of the election saw more political ads during the quote-unquote political blackout on Facebook than they did the week before. Let me just repeat that. Facebook had a blackout on media coverage for the week of the election, and yet their users on Facebook the week of the election saw more political ads than, during, than the week before. And what this tells you is two things. Number one, they cannot patrol themselves. They can't. He's proven that over and over and over again. But here, more importantly, is the second point. They don't need to. There is no one in control of Facebook except for him. He is making the decisions. They, if they wanted to do this, who knows? I, it's either two things. They can't, they can't technically do this, which I really—part of me believes this and part of me doesn't believe it. But the reality is they don't need to. There's too much money and disinformation— agitated, upset people spend more. They, they have more reliance on big tech and more reliance on big corporations. And that is exactly what they want. They want you upset. They want you on Facebook. They want you commenting. They want that time and that data. And he has proved it over and over and over. And there's no one in the American government right now that I see that even understands what Facebook is or how it operates. So I'm not sure they can really control themselves, and they really don't need to because, you know, you can get in front of Congress and lie and lie and lie, and nothing happens. You can promise political blackouts, and nothing happens. Uh, it just goes on and on. So he's, once again, uh, I, and, I've, you know, you guys are probably sick of hearing me say this, but the destructiveness of that platform that you can witness on a personal level on a daily basis is impossible for me to look beyond. You know, I'm not one of these rose-colored glasses people. I'm not one of these dreamers that sits there and says, gee, my, you know, there's a coyote chewing off my leg. 
I'm an animal lover, you know, I'm going to leave it alone. If there's a coyote chewing off my leg, I'm going to take care of the coyote, right? That's just a survival of the fittest thing. It's a food chain thing. It's a reality thing. I can't look at Facebook and say, oh, but I don't use it that way. Or, oh, I just do family stuff on there. It's not true. Everybody who tells me that, it's not true. Because you take one, two-second look. They'll hug their phone. Hey, look, you know, I'm just doing this. And you flip through their feed and you're like, no, you're not. You're, you're using it for all kinds of things. But look at what we know. Look at the facts of what we know. And that dude is unstoppable. You have to give him credit because not only did he have the, the wherewithal and the know-how to do what he's doing, but he also has to have that like slightly sociopathic tendency to push it as far as they have and then get up in public and feed us these, these phony bogus lines that he always starts out with. Oh, our goal with Facebook is to connect the world. You know, he still gets up there and you can kind of look at him and go, there's like 2% of him that really still believes that. And so that's crazy. So he's our scum of the week. Question of the week is, is now the best time to buy a Danish mink coat? And would you buy a mink coat from Denmark if you knew that it was a zombie mink coat? And does it matter if it's a zombie mink coat? Because once they've made the minks into the coat, if then they resurrect themselves, then you got a serious problem. The, the fact that your mink coat is a zombie mink coat is probably the least of your worries. But if you don't know this story, they culled many, many, many mink in uh, Denmark because they had, uh, they had acquired the coronavirus and then put their own little spin on it and then given it to, a, I don't know, 12, 15 people who were then being quarantined, right? That's kind of scary to, have, to be like one of 12 or 15 who have the mutated form of corona that came through a mink. I would not want to really be in that category. Most often, it's kind of cool to be in the limited, you know, limited group, but that's not uh, a group that I would want to be in. So anyway, would you buy a Danish mink coat now? I don't know. It's a really tough question. Let's get on to the points. Some of these are tied together. I think there's two or three of these points um, that I think are, are really good. Uh, the first is let's talk about photography and the environment, which I've talked about before, but I was, I was doing a little research this week. Last year alone, there were 60 million tons of e-waste uh, basically created by the world. 60 million tons of e-waste. And I know what you're saying. Oh, that's not me. I would never do that. Oh, I always, I always recycle mine. Well, get, let, me, let me just fill you with some nice little data here. 17% of the material that we send to recycling is actually recycled. 17%. So 60 million tons, even if 60 million tons were, were, were basically recycled or sent to recycling, only 17% is recycled. And you're talking about gold, silver, copper, platinum, indium, etc. These are incredibly rare, expensive metals. Um, for those of you who are uh, photography lovers, you will, you will love to know that these, most of the waste material is being shipped to countries that are less fortunate by governments who are taking it and giving it to really less fortunate people to then take apart or burn or try to extract these metals out of, China being one of these companies, just one, our countries. When you burn these things, to get the copper off, you end up with lead, mercury, and cadmium, to name a few. Uh, and for those of you who loved Kodak Ectolure darkroom paper, uh, that was filled with cadmium. That was one of the reasons why that paper was discontinued, is it was horrible for the environment. So Ectolure was the bright spot of using cadmium. The rest of it is pretty bad. Um, and so this is kind of a crazy thing that we have to really take 
to, to heart because, and, and you're going to talk about the ultimate in hip, uh, hypocrisy because I'm going to talk about another point here a minute about new, some new technology that I have. And this is, a, I don't have a solution for this, but all I'm saying is that the current system that we have is certainly not working the way it should. And I think the only thing that we can do on a personal level is to make sure to use the equipment we have as long as possible. And then when we do recycle it, we have to go that one step further of figuring out who these companies are. Because I know there was a big story here a couple of years ago in the U.S. where one of these big recycling companies on their website and their management was on television talking about this recycling program. And in actuality, what they were doing was just filling enormous containers that were going on ships and landing in China where people were sitting over open fires, melting copper off the circuit boards and creating this like toxic haze and they were dying and, you know, getting weird diseases and their children were deformed and all that stuff. And so we have to go that one step further to say, where is this actually being recycled? Like what is happening here? And I know that's a little bit more work, but we have to, we have to do this because man, I mean, first of all, these, these materials are in limited quantity. And when you're talking gold, silver, copper, platinum, those kind of things, there's more of those than there are of these rare earth metals. We have rare earth, Russia has them, China has them. They're incredibly expensive to extract and also destructive to the environment. I've, I said this last week, you, you can't really be in photography and, in be, and be an environmentalist. I mean, there's a few people who tow that line really, really well, who have dedicated their entire lives to doing uh, environmental stories as photographers, but most of the photographers that I know that claim to be aren't even remotely close. It's kind of insulting to even hear him say that. All right. Point number two, one of the most brilliant things that Donald Trump did was coin, and maybe he was not the one to coin this, but he was the one that really took it to the bank to use it. Steven Seagal, 1980s, crux of a movie line, take it to the bank. That was like Steven Seagal back when he was skinny and he was just like doing, you know, Aikido to people, uh, bad guys, all the same bad guys in all his movies. I think it's that crew out of Chicago. They were in every movie, every Chuck Norris movie, every Seagal movie. But, but Trump coined the phrase, the phrase fake news. You know, anything he didn't like, anything he didn't want, anything that showed him in a bad light. And then he took off with it. And the Republicans took off with it. And his family took off with it. And his business associates took off with it. And his lawyers took off with it. And anything that made them look bad, fake news, fake news, fake news. It was brilliant. When he first started doing it, I told some friends, I was like, that's amazing. Because his followers will start to believe it. And they did. And now they're, they've even gone past him. Like Trump is sinking and his crazy followers and the, you know, the Newsmax people and the QAnon people, they're just rocketing even further up. And the fact that they're turning on Fox News is amazing to me. But so let's, let's go away from the fake news thing. And, you know, I studied journalism. I'm not saying I'm a great journalist or I'm an expert on this, but I studied it. I spent time working as a journalist, and that meant something to me about what my responsibility was in the field. CNN, I would put the CNN kind of in the middle. Like I look at CNN. So you have like Fox on one side, you have MSNBC on the other side. In the middle, you could throw in something like CNN. Then you've got your print media, whether it's the Post or the Times. Uh, you've got the Atlantic, which I, I, I hold in high standing. I think the Atlantic has a different sensibility. They also have different press laws in the UK than we do in the US. I typically, that's one of the first places I look for my news. The Atlantic is another, the New Yorker, et cetera. But I just want to, I want to tell you about something. If you're one of these people who says that there's just no journalism left, right? Like I can't get a good valid, you know, so I have Trump supporters, friends on one side and I have and Biden supporter friends on the other. 
and everybody bitches about the media and how the media has failed everyone and there's no way to get sources and I have family members are like well where do you get your news from you know and they're Fox they're watching Fox I'm like wait a second you're questioning where I get my news and you're listening to Fox right that's insanity to me but there's one place and there's more than one good place but there's one place that I want you to look and there's one person I want you to look at and I just want you to watch this it's going to take two hours it's going to take two hours right? Just deal with it. Two hours. You have two hours. Turn off Facebook. Turn off Instagram. Don't watch some stupid program. Just watch what I'm going to tell you to watch. And you will know that journalism exists. And you will know the depth and the level in which it exists. And that it's there if you want it. But good journalism takes time. It takes lifespans, careers to get invested in these places and stories at a level. And frankly, these media organizations have no reason to pay for anyone to do that because it's way easier to throw out superficial, regurgitated crap and clickbait and make ad revenue than it is to pay for journalism. So there's a, 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 an organization called Frontline. And by the way, if you don't know Frontline, if you've never heard of Frontline, the, the commentator has the best voice of any human being I've ever heard. He, he could tell me anything. He could say, you're being arrested for indecent exposure. And I'd be like, oh my God, you sound amazing. His voice is incredible. Go to Frontline. And I want you to look up a woman named Julia Loff, L-O-F-F-E. And I have no idea if that's how you pronounce her last name. She is a reporter. She's a journalist. She is born in Russia, came to the States when she was seven. She speaks Russian, speaks English, obviously, and she was a correspondent for The Atlantic. She was a correspondent for The New Yorker, and now she's a correspondent for GQ. Frontline will show you a two-hour interview with Julia, and it's the, it's the reporter off camera that you can't see, and it's Julia on camera, and that's all it is for two hours. And this reporter who is asking the questions is well-informed, right? These are not stupid, superficial questions. These are, in particular, she is a Russia specialist. So the interview with her details in great part what's happening in Russia, what's happening with Putin, the relationships between Putin and American authorities, and relationships with these two countries. She is incredibly knowledgeable. And you sit there and listen to this and go, oh, this is really the first time that I've ever actually heard anyone on television telling me the real deal about Russia. It's there. And my point is the journalism is there. And thank God for The Atlantic, The New Yorker, and GQ for, for ponying up to pay for these people to put the time in to have their sources, to get this information, and to put things out in long form. And for me, like two hours is nothing. I, that, you know, I would get up at four in the morning to watch that because it's that good. Normally getting up at six, if I said, look, I don't have, that, I don't have time tomorrow to do this, blah, 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 I would get up at six and do that. Uh, Julia Loff, Frontline, talking about Russia. And once you're on the front line, just go to YouTube and go to their front line channel, and you'll, you'll see her almost immediately. Um, I don't know anything about her. This was the, my first encounter with her, but I was very impressed, and, um, and I loved it. And I thought, this is something you folks should know about if you don't know about it now. And there's like 14 other people talking about Russia, by the way, so you could fill days and days and days of listening, but it's, it's very cool. One little quick thing before I get to the next point. I want to talk... Um, a little bit about my Blurb job. Uh, I'm still with Blurb. I, there was an email that went out on December 1st. December 1st, it was a newsletter to the whole company, 
saying that Dan Milner has been at the company for 10 years. Uh, I think it's actually been longer. And if you consider the advisory board position that goes back to, I think, 2007, it's been quite a bit longer. But obviously, the best job I've ever had in my life, the most interesting and by far the most challenging job, I was a hot tub installer once in Texas in the summer. That sucked. I was a, uh, I was a fragrance model at the mall. That lasted like two days. That was horrible. I was just lucky to survive that. I thought some rancher guy was going was gonna to just take his lever action 30-30 and smoke me when I jumped out with my fragrance of the day and in my tuxedo and like blasted him with it. So um, the blurb job is interesting and it's super challenging. And over the last 10 years, I've had, I don't know how many photographers reach out to me and say, can you get me a job at blurb? And, you know, depending on who they are and blurb hires from time to time in all different kinds of departments. And, I, and if someone's really searching for a job and, and I looked at them and their skill set, and I thought, you know, where this person could fit in, I would try to do that. But most of the time, Photographers that were coming were kind of desperate, and they looked at what I was doing, and they sort of envisioned something in their head and said, oh, that job looks really easy, and you know that's got to be cush, and I can do that too. And I never really proposed any of those people to blurb because you can't come into the job like that thinking that because it's not. It's a technology company in essence, and the people that I work with are really smart. And they are really talented. I mean, scary. They're, we have data analytics people and coders and UX people and product people and marketing people. And they're all really good. You don't get jobs in these companies without having your, yourself dialed. I mean, totally dialed. Uh, one of our art directors once, Alex Palacios, I just watched her one time using the computer, the same computer that I had. And, and Alex was like, I, I looked and it took me like, I don't know, 20 seconds to go, wait a minute, this is the same computer I have and the same programs. And the way that she was using the computer was so far beyond anything I'd been capable of or even knew that you could do with the computer. I was like, oh, I'm old and stupid. And I came in as an outlier in a weird position at a weird time early on. You know, would I be able to get this job now? Probably not. Um, yesterday, it was pretty funny. And this is what got me thinking about this is, you know, I work in the marketing department and I sort of have associations with other pieces of the company as well when they reach out or we reach out to them. You know, you work with the other other product team or whatever. But yesterday, I had this meeting about writing and about making, and I've been writing stuff for Blurb for many years, and I love to write. And they reached out and said, hey, you know, we've got this, um, I, I sent them a, a good page list of topic ideas that I thought would be helpful to Blurb customers to for me to write about. And so they reached out and said, hey, we've, we've sort of organized the first batch. And there were 18 writing assignments, 18 posts that I'm, I'm on the hook for. And I think total there were like 135 or something that are coming up. And that's just like one little tiny piece of the job. And a, a part of me is like when, I, when they said, well, someone on the call said, how many of these are there? And the person said, well, this is just the first batch. And on my screen, I could only see four. And I thought, well, I came up with these topics and I'm looking at them. And I thought, okay, so I come up with the topic. Then they do the research and they say, okay, these are the keywords that are primarily associated. This is the terminology we would like you to work into this if possible for SEO results, all this stuff. This is not just like me one-off winging something. There's a, there's a strategy. It's very, it's scientific, if you will. Uh, it's, it's a little bit like news writing. You know, when you write for a newspaper, you're not writing a feature every time. You're writing newspaper stuff, which is, it, it's a very, very specific way of writing. And, the, and it, some, some people get into it and they go, this is boring, I don't want to do it. And other people master it. You know, it's like the Hemingway style of writing where the, the, the ignorant folks go, this looks easy. 
Um, and but you get into it and you go, well, try to write like that. It's very difficult. And so, but I was like, man, this is, on one hand, you'd be like, God, there's 18 different things I have to write. And then potentially there's 130 or whatever things I have to write. But it's like, I don't know, I find it exciting. And that leads me into my next point because writing has changed a bit for me in the last couple of weeks. And I wanted to share this with you because this is maybe the most important post of this entire uh, podcast. And this is about new technology that I happen to either have been given in the past couple of weeks or I have purchased in the past couple of weeks. And there's a few things I want to talk about here. There's a mouse, there's a keyboard, there's a computer, and there's a phone. And what I have learned, and I think I might be able to save some of you from making a mistake. The first thing I want to talk about is I now have an iPhone 12. And for those of you who don't know, I've always had a problem with electronics breaking cameras, phones, watches, etc. This goes back to my time as a, as a middle schooler. So it goes way back in my life. If you think I'm joking, I'm not. I have some weird, I, I, I do often make jokes about my body putting out some death ray that cripples electronics. It's true. It's been happening my whole life. So I have a really bad time getting things that last. And so I don't buy phones anymore. I lease them because I kept going like, you know, I'd spend 800 bucks on a phone and six months later it's broken. And Apple would be like, it's your fault. You dropped it or you got water on it. And I'm like, no, I didn't. It's just weird. You know, the batteries don't hold a charge. The, um, they slow them down, et cetera. There's a million reasons not to buy a phone now. But I'm on, this, I'm on this lease program, and I got the email. You know, your 11 is capable. Of, you're now uh, eligible for an upgrade to the iPhone 12. I'm like, great. I don't think anything about it. I don't care about these devices. So I, I, I send off for the 12, they ship the 12, I package up the 11, I ship it back. I've done this I don't know how many times now. And so I open the 12, and my first thought is, oh, no. Oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Because the 12 looks like the iPhone 5. It has the metal frame around the outside, and it's what I would call more angular than the 11. The 11 was a little smoother. The 11 felt a little rounder, um, but the 12 wasn't. And the first thing I thought was, oh, no, that's the iPhone 5, and the reception is going to suck. And the other thing that was bad about the iPhone 5 was the battery. Because, and I remember this because I was in Sydney, Australia, buying an iPhone 5 unlocked because you couldn't buy unlocked iPhones in America at that time. So I had flown to Sydney to do some work for Blurb, and I purposely bought an unlocked iPhone so that I could use it when I was traveling and put extra you know, chip cards in it when I needed, etc., so, and two other people had given me their money for me to buy them iPhone 5s in Sydney as well. So I had like $3,000 in cash, you know, going to buy these phones in Sydney. And I bought it in Sydney. And two days later, I took it back to Apple and I said, I'm sorry, you know, I, I think I have a bad one. And the guy, and the battery's not holding a charge. And the guy goes, no, it's not you. It's all of them. They're all that bad. And I was like, oh God. And I remember being at a creative festival on that trip and everybody with an iPhone 5 was like, this sucks. And they were just, you know, every, you could see those people with their power cords running around in the dark in the corners of the building looking for charge. And I remember the festival director in the middle of this like crisis looks at me and goes, my phone's flat, my phone's flat. And I was like, what does that mean? What does that mean? And, th and then he held it up and I was like, oh, that's Australian for the battery's dead. And I was like, well, you know, mine's on a US, well, no, it was unlocked. And so these phones, the reception on the 5 and the battery sucked. And so the 12, when I sent back the 11 and I started using the 12, there were two things that jumped out immediately. The battery is horrible. I mean, horrible. It is, there are times when the phone is plugged in, 
but I'm using it for like a Zoom call and the phone is pulling more power than the charge is putting in. So even with the phone plugged in, the battery is going down. That I've never seen before. Two, just without the phone plugged in and just sitting there, the, the phone is burning the battery like you cannot believe. If I was in the field now working, this is a minimum of two to three batteries a day, easy. You'd have to have an external battery. So if you're on the fence about getting the 12, do not get it. The second thing is I have the exact same cell phone program. I did not change. I'm with T-Mobile. I've been with T-Mobile forever. I'm in the same exact places. And this phone has what I'm guessing is half of the cell coverage of the 11, which is a major problem for me. I've had friends, family members over the last week say, dude, what's happening? You're breaking up. Uh, and then they, I can hear them. They can't hear me. And I hear them go like, God damn it. And then hang up the phone and call me back. That's happens over and over again. Do not buy the 12. There's something wrong with it, both the reception and the battery. Wait for them to do upgrades on this and software upgrades because it is a disaster. And if I could get my 11 back, I would. Okay, moving on. Two positive things. I now am the proud owner, the proud father of a DAS keyboard, D-A-S keyboard. This is a mechanical keyboard. It is not Bluetooth because I'll get to that in a minute. This is a plug-in keyboard, so it plugs in USB. The keyboard also has two additional USB ports built into it, which I needed, which I'll get to in a minute. And the DAS keyboard is mechanical, and mine comes with what's called a brown switch. And these are how the, the travel and the interaction of the keys can be changed with different colored switches. So red, blue, brown, white, I think is another one. Brown is sort of middle ground. I love it. And this is the old clack, clack, clack keyboard. It's the big plastic keys that make a lot of noise, but the tr they have a lot of travel. Those keys go up and down. And if you write as much as I do, and I just, and that's one of the reasons I told you the blurb story of getting, you know, yesterday was 18 different things said, hey, these are things you need to start working on. And today I got one more. So I have 19 things I have to start working on. I'm writing all day long, every day. Plus I wrote four letters this week. I write emails all day long. Um, it's why I'm not doing any photography or any creative projects for the most part is this is what I'm doing for a living now. That's my job. So the, um, the keyboard is fantastic. It's one of the best purchases I've ever made. And I got the big one that has the numeric pad on the right side, has all the function keys across the top. And it's not specific to Apple. When you plug it in, it, you, it makes you do a couple of key commands and then it figures out what it is, what kind of computer you're on. But it doesn't have all the same keys that the Apple keyboard does, but it doesn't matter because they're all the same keys are there. They're just not labeled the same. The DAS keyboard, if you don't know about it, it was about a hundred bucks. Really fantastic. Uh, mechanical keyboards now, every hipster wants one. They're, they're really fun. If you haven't used one, these are all the keyboards that when originally when they went away, we thought we were improving and we went to these modern keyboards and then you're like, God, these actually kind of suck. And then these old keyboards are better. The DAS keyboard is great. In addition to the DAS keyboard, I got an MX Master 3 Logitech mouse. And this mouse is life-changing. Now, if you're a person who's actually used a oh, first-world real-world mouse in the last five years, you're probably going to ignore this or think I'm an idiot, which is probably true. But uh, I saw a friend of mine who was like, hey, uh, you know, I use this mouse every day. It's really fantastic. And I was just using an Apple mouse, right, which Blurb had given me. And it's funny because when it comes up on my computer, it has some other employee's name on it. But I've been using this for years. But so I'm like, well, my friend says, look, dude, you're, you're doing films now. And you're in and out of these Adobe programs and you're, you, you know, you can use your keyboard shortcuts, but why not just assign these things to the mouse? And I'm like, what are you talking about? So I buy this mouse and it has right and left click 
It's shaped like a fighter pilot joystick. It is the most incredible feel in your hand. I feel like I could strafe, you know, a village somewhere with this thing. It is so incredibly like contoured to your hand. So you have right and left click. You have the, the, the little dial with your index finger. You have a second dial for your thumb that scrolls horizontally right to left, left to right, which is amazing when you're cutting video because you're just going back and forth with your thumb. Then you have buttons that you can control your web pages, forward and back through web pages with your thumb. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. You can assign little clicks of this mouse inside of Adobe Premiere, Lightroom, Photoshop, etc., where there are shortcuts on the mouse. Now, I told this to a friend of mine who's a PC user, who's been an amazing PC user forever. His computers look like RoboCop. They're just incredible, these hand-built, assembled machines. And he just looks at me with Apple, and he's like, oh, you idiot. And he's like, dude, I've been doing this for, you know, 10 years. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm an idiot. So now I have this mouse. If you're in the, in the market, the mouse is amazing. The keyboard is amazing, which brings me to my last piece of tech here. And the first thing I have to do is I have to thank Blurb for doing this. I have been using Blurb computers since 2010. And they just replaced my last keyboard, my last computer, which was a MacBook Pro from 2015, early 2015. So roughly five years old. There was the last Apple MacBook Pro that had ports outside of USB-C. It had real ports. It had SD card slot. It had, US, it had um, USB ports. It was amazing. I was just in and out of those ports all day long, every day. And I was like, oh, this is great. But it was old. And I was using it for things it was not designed for. And it would get super hot. And it was old. And I was like, oh, I'm, you know, this is going to not end well. So they, they finally replaced my laptop with a MacBook Pro 13, but not the new one. Not the M1 chip new Apple chip max. It's the last one of the Intel, right? And I'm like, I don't care. It's better than what I have and great. And I'm thankful, but I've learned a lot about this machine. And if you are in the market and I'm telling you this because I've talked to a bunch of people who are on the fence about buying this new Mac compared to the one that I have. And I can say with 100% certainty, I would not buy the one that I have now. I would wait and I would get that Mac M1. Even though some of the apps aren't optimized, it may not be perfect, but there, I'm going to tell you a couple of things about this MacBook Pro that are mind-bogglingly bad, and I do not know how anyone can look at this and say this is a world-class computer. So, the positive. Uh, I just rendered a 20-minute, exactly, 20-minute 1080p high-res film out of Adobe Premiere. It was very basic. It was me on camera with two little, you know, bumpers on the front and back, which were static with a couple of still pictures layered in. And then I put a black and white, you know, look on it. So color graded with a black and white thing. That's all I did. It was 20 minutes long. And on the new computer, it took 18 minutes to render. Now the old computer, that would have been over an hour. So huge time saving, huge, huge, huge time saving. So it's much, much, much faster than my old computer. And that right there is worth it, right? I'm happy. The rest of what I'm going to tell you is not good, but it, the, the, the speed and the fact that it's new. So here's the other positive stuff. So it's fast. And with Apple, your build quality is amazing. These things are milled from these big pieces of aluminum. And it is so solid and beautiful looking. And that's part of the reason. It's part of the cult of Apple. Apple users are willing to pay four times more for the same technology or less than PC users. Let me repeat that. Mac users are willing to pay four times more for less. 
And part of that is build quality. So yes, the build quality, like if you look at the build quality between this MacBook Pro and a Dell XPS 13, I see a pretty significant build quality difference in favor of Apple. The Dells have gotten much better, but you also hear tons of stories about people going, I got mine and it was broken and I had to send it back and Dell customer service sucks and all that stuff. I heard it over and over and over again. It kind of makes you leery about buying that stuff because you're like, mm, quality control. Apple is, is nuts on all the time. So the second part I want to say that's, so you have great speed, you have great build quality, the size, it's tiny, it's thin, it's beautiful from a distance. Like you go, Oh my God, that is a gorgeous work of art. The next point I want to make point number four positive about Apple is the operating system, right? That's why the majority of people I know are willing to pay the four times more because the, their operating system is so much simpler and more intuitive than Windows, right? That's, that's a universal complaint about Windows is security updates and pop-up things and kind of a nightmare. The other thing that the new MacBook has that my old one didn't that I think is a really welcome addition is the fingerprint reader because it saves you time in typing in your password all the time. And everything I'm doing now is encrypted. All my drives, everything is encrypted because you just have to. There's, it's, when I'm on the road and I'm using all these funky wireless connections and networks and, un, you know, un, uh, I was going to say unsafetyed. That's definitely not a word. Uh, that's, the, that's the good part of this AVL. So speed, the build quality, the size, the operating system, and the finger reader. Let's talk about the other side of this MacBook Pro. And this is what I'm sitting here just like, I'm marveling at how this computer could get good reviews. Um, if you are someone who is making stuff on a daily basis, if you're doing email and surfing the web, great. You're never going to have a problem with this. You're going to love it. If you're a content creator, you're going to if you're not already running into these problems, you will. And look at me. It's not like I'm the Mount Everest of content producers. I'm like a small fry. I'm just doing basic stuff, 20-minute 1080 or 5-minute 1080 films. This is not complicated. I'm using Lightroom. I'm using Adobe Premiere. Uh, I'm using Adobe Edition. I'm using Photoshop barely. You know, light. If so. so if, I, if I turn on any of the Adobe programs, the fan on the laptop kicks on automatically. That's not good. It doesn't do it every single time, but it does it about 90% of the time. The fan kicks on just by opening an Adobe product. And the fan is loud. I cannot record in the room with the fan, fan on. That tells you how loud it is. So that's a bit weird. The keyboard on the laptop, and if you know anything about Apple MacBooks of the last five years, you know the disaster that they have been. And you know they released things that the, 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 the story is that Steve Jobs would have never even let these go on market right, was the butterfly keyboard of about three years ago with Apple and their MacBooks. They were all faulty. They all broke. My wife is a perfect example. Uh, hers has been had, it's, we've had to fix it multiple times and they can't fix it. It's a horrible, it's the, by far the, the single worst keyboard of any computer I've ever used in my life is my wife's 16 inch MacBook Pro with the butterfly keyboard. It's that bad. This computer, my new one, is not that bad, right? It's a definite improvement over the butterfly keyboard. It really is. And the, but, but here's the thing. I already told you how much I write. I started writing on this keyboard and I was like, there's no way I can do all this on this keyboard. This is a horrible experience, which is why I bought the DAS keyboard. And the DAS keyboard is like a warm blanket and a cup of cocoa spiked with Everclear on a nice winter day. I mean, it is fantastic. You use the MacBook Pro keyboard and you're like, this is not for people who write. This is for people consuming content. I don't know, again, how they could get away with it, but they have. And it is better than the other one. But if you write a lot, 
I would not want this keyboard. My old MacBook Pro, the five-year-old computer, that keyboard is way better than the new one. And it's just odd to have to say this. Okay, moving on. Uh, the, you, we've all heard this as well about these MacBook Pros, and this was my first experience. So when I called the, our, our, our IT person, who's awesome, and I said, hey, dude, I'm going to have to order some dongles. And he goes, no, I'm sending you two dongles with the, with, the, with the laptop. I said, cool. So I get the laptop, and I plug the dongles in, and I'm like, uh-oh, I don't have the right dongles. I need more. So I end up with four dongles. And there's only four ports on the computer. One is taken up by the power supply, which I'm going to get to in a minute, because that's probably the single most glaring issue I'm having. So three of the ports are now filled full-time with dongles. And I realize I still don't have the, enough dongles, because I don't have a micro SD and an SD card, which I use every single day, all day long. Today, I use the SD card reader probably six times, and I use the micro SD card reader once. So I had to steal my wife's dongle. So now I have four dongles, three dongles in all the time, and she's coming in and out of my office. And so now I'm having to unplug and plug and unplug and unplug. And I'm thinking to myself, who on earth thought this was a good idea? This is so bad and so inefficient. So I went online and guess what? I ordered a fifth dongle. Now the fifth dongle will eliminate the fact that I, 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 will, uh, I will eliminate two of the five. But the problem is, if you go on the road, any professional will tell you this, any honest professional, the same thing applies to cameras. When digital cameras would come, came out, and they were $15,000, and you had this subset of photographer that would come along, and they were like photojournalists, right? And they would spend, they would take out loans to get these digital cameras, and then on one hand, they'd be like, these are the best, this is incredible, this is amazing. They would go on assignment somewhere, and it would break. Any photographer going on assignment overseas with one camera is not professional, because you have to have backups. And so they would call, I was working for Kodak at the time, they would call us in a panic, you have to send me another camera. And I'm like, I'm not sending you a camera to Africa, you know, a $15,000 camera because you didn't have money to buy a second one. Same thing applies today. Like if you're going to buy a Leica rangefinder digital camera, you're looking at 20 grand probably to get into, you know, having multiple bodies to go overseas to work on projects. That's why not many pros use them. You just can't afford them. So I realized, great, I've got this dongle. But if I go on the road, especially if I get on a plane for Blurb and I fly somewhere, I have to have a second one because these dongles are like the weak point. What if your port goes out? What if the dongle goes out? What if a piece of the dongle goes out? What if you lose a dongle? What if you get stolen? You're dead in the water. I mean, dead in the water. I do not, for the life of me, understand how people consider this a world-class computer. But wait, there's more. It gets better. So I have been watching these short promo pieces about the new Apple M1 series of computers. And if you don't know about these, the M1 is Apple's first chip inside their computer. It's an ARM chip, I believe. And it's very different from anything they've had before. There are people out there that are saying this has completely changed the face of, of computers. It's that kind of big of a development. Now, you have the haters immediately that are going to hate everything. But even some of those people, I think, are turning around. It looks like a, a market improvement over anything they've had before in terms of speed, performance, and battery life. One of the crazy things to me that I saw during the promo was a 20-hour battery life. And I was like, wait a second, 20 hours battery life? That's impossible. If that is in fact true, even remotely true, even 15 hours, I would just be astounded because that is what you call a, a life-changing uh, change, especially for someone like me who's often working out of a van where I, I, everything I have to charge goes off a solar generator. And if I'm in the field for two or three days without being able to recharge the generator, I don't want to have to plug something in over and over and over again. So I'm like, 
why does the laptop battery that I have seem like it's nowhere remotely near? And I know I'm not on the new M1, so I'm on the Intel and I don't expect a 20-hour battery life, but I'm, I'm expecting like 8 or 10 hours, right? That seems like a pretty reasonable thing. So I do a test today. I unplug my computer at 11.55 a.m. And it's 100% charge. And I'm like, all right. I export one 20-minute 1080 film, the same film I told you about before. It takes 18 minutes. That 18 minutes burns 30% of the battery. I am now at 70% battery. And I'm like, wow, that seems like a lot. And I know what you're thinking. There's people out there that are like, Milner, it's just you. It's only you. You're the only person in the world that's having this problem. That's not true. I know it's everyone that has this. But you have the Mac apology world that just says, oh, this is, you can't talk bad about this equipment. I'm just trying to figure this out. Maybe it is me. Maybe there is something I'm doing wrong that you can help me with. So it burns 30% of the battery in an 18-minute film. That seems astronomical to me. That seems like something is wrong. Then I say to myself, okay, well, that's an unfair test because I'm using Adobe Premiere and I'm rendering and I know that's a power, power hog. So I'm just going to leave it unplugged and I'm going to leave for an hour and come back and see where the battery is. So I get on the, the spin bike and I do in my house here and I do like an hour on the bike because um, I got up early and worked early and I didn't get the yoga in. And so I, you know, I have to get my exercise in to stay healthy at 1.50 p.m. So that's not even two hours. That's an hour and 50 minutes later. My battery is dead. So let me repeat that. I unplugged at 11.55. I did a 20-minute film. It burned 30% of the battery. I left it unplugged, left it. So I wasn't using it until I came back to it. And it, was, it wasn't completely dead. It was 10% battery. And I thought, man, that's weird. That's a lot. That's, that's less than a two-hour battery and me not using it for the second hour. Well, actually, me not using it for basically an hour and 45 minutes, or an hour and 15 minutes. And then I thought, well, I'll do a test. There's 10% 10, 10 of the battery left. I'll just export that film again and see what happens. So I started to export the film, and the battery, I'm looking at it, and it goes 10%, 5%, 1%, that fast. And I just went, oh, no, and I plugged it back in. So the battery life on this thing, unless I have a bad one, and that's, that's possible. The battery life is horrendous. And the, the new ones, that if, if that was the only difference, it would be worth buying the new one. If, but the, the dongles, you're still screwed with the new one. The dongle scene is ridiculous. I cannot believe that so many people put up with this. And unless you're just sitting. If you're stationary and you're only doing the same thing every day, and you're doing email and surfing the web and not using, you know, I have two external hard drives. I have a SATA drive system I use every day. I use both of the portable hard drives. I use my printer. I use SD, mini SD. I use my keyboard. And yeah, that's, that's like a basic day for me. And so this is, man, I'm just baffled. Again, totally thankful that I don't have to like go out and dump my own money. But now I'm at the point where I might get an M1 uh, I might get an M1 Mac Mini uh, for myself so that I can just break this up into two computers and not get stuck relying on this Mac MacBook Pro. My wife is about to come in the door, and she's home way earlier than I thought. So I'm going to try to get through these points, and then she's going to yell at me when she comes in, and I'm probably going to yell at her, so bear with me. Um, I just want to hit this new this new point here, which is college football is proof of how screwed up our country is. I'm a, I, I used to love football. I used to love watching football. 
Um, the NFL lost me with with Goodell and his idiotic, you know, love affair with Trump and bagging on Kaepernick and, you know, now claiming because he's in the middle of this mess that, you know, oh, gee, maybe we should listen to Colin Kaepernick. Maybe his uh, kneeling wasn't about the flag. You know, after, you know, he knew it all along. He pandered. College football is maybe even worse because college football is about powerhouse organizations versus horrible organizations who play the games because they get the money for playing these big powerhouse teams. It's disgusting. I like look at college football and I'm like, this is one of the dumbest things I've ever seen. Now with the COVID, the COVID is spreading through college football like mad. I just wanted to get a dig in on college football, especially people like Nick Saban. Can't stand that guy. I went to Texas. Maybe that's a part of it. I don't even, I don't follow Texas football. I don't care about college football. It just is, it's a mess to me. And it kind of is representative of all the things that are wrong with America. And again, I love football. If you wanted to organize a football game in my driveway right now, I would be in it. I would be lacing up and using those black, that black stick under my eyes. And I would be talking trash and talking about how I'm going to, how I'm going to trash you when, when you go across the middle, because I'm, I'm coming for your head and I'm coming for your knees. That's me. I love the game. I love the violence of it. Just a little story. My brother and I, who's my brother's six years older. He's awesome. Great athlete. Far better than I am. My brother went to a college in San Antonio called Trinity. And Trinity was considered the Texas Ivy League. It was a really good academic school. My brother got in just before they raised their economic standards. Not exactly a stellar student. And he would admit that. I could have, by the time I was out of school, there was no way I could academically qualify to get into Trinity. But my brother lived on campus. And when I was in like high school, early high school, we would organize these football games on Saturday or Sunday. Yeah, probably Sunday because at that time, Trinity still had a football team. And they had a, a, a regulation size 100-yard football field. And so my brother and I and his friends, ne- never my friends, only my brother's friends. So I'm playing with people who are all six years older than me. We would go down and we would play full field, tackle, full contact football with no pads or helmets. It was a bloodbath. I mean, you knew on that morning, and it was always during the winter. We never played in the summer. It was always winter. We'd go to Taco Cabana, and we'd get buckets. I'm not kidding. No, I'm not joking. At the time, you could do this. Taco Cabana, which is a chain I love, would serve. You could buy a bucket of refried beans and a bucket of rice and a bucket of tortillas, right? That was our fuel and beer, just nonstop Schaefer light. And we would go down and play full field, Full contact tackle football with no pads or helmets, bloodbath. And my favorite part of the of playing football was playing defensive back and hitting people. And my brother's my brother had a friend who was skinny. He was super tall and skinny, incredibly smart, really fun guy. And I, for some reason, got it in my head that he was he was the devil, and I was going to punish him every time the ball got anywhere near him. And I kind of got went, I kind of went a little bit too far with it. And I remember him saying to my brother, Hey, I think your brother's really doesn't like me and is trying to hurt me. And I was like, no, I'm not trying to hurt you. But when you come across the middle or you go deep or you go short or you're out of the backfield, I am going to put the heat on you. Like you cannot believe now I'm not big. I'm probably 160 pounds right now. And I was smaller back then, but I was fast and I could hit. And that was my favorite part. Catching a touchdown, whatever, no big deal. Running in a touchdown, no big deal. But when someone went out for a pass and I was guarding them and they caught it and I could just stick them and then drive them into the frozen ground, 
I have to say, call me juvenile. I don't know. I don't care. I love it. So I love the game of football, but what college has done to it and the pros, disgusting. Point number five, Iranian scientist last week was assassinated. Uh, fingerprints of Israel and the U.S. on that. I don't think Israel would have moved on that without talking to Trump. Um, and I, they're all lying about it. Israel, of course, is never going to probably admit to doing this, but they don't mess around. That is going to complicate some things. This is something that we have to file away because down the road, this is going to come back on us. And I think Trump really pushed for it now because he's trying to break as much as he possibly can before he leaves to hinder Biden. And this brings me to the next point is that when the election prior to the election, um, Department of Justice head Barr, Bill Barr, who's a rat, Barr came out and said, if people are protesting these the election, we're going to charge them with sedition. And, you know, he's not joking and saying, we're going to jail you for sedition. Well, that's like straight out of the dictator handbook, right? But now, if you look at what Mike Pompeo, Trump, and Barr are doing now, you can throw Stephen Miller in here. You could legitimately start angling them towards charges of sedition. And sedition is like treason. These are not charges you take lightly. But you're basically purposely trying to go against your government and the people. And that is what I'm seeing, particularly from Trump and Pompeo right now. And these are people that I cannot wait for them to be gone. I don't care if they have Republican hanging around their neck. They're not. They're just evil people who have proven over and over and over that they just basically lie and do everything that they're not supposed to do. And there's plenty of examples of this from each of these people. Probably the, the shrewdest of all of those people is Stephen Miller. I mean, Miller's time goes back to uh, Jeff Sessions' office. And Miller is really the architect of a lot of the immigration policies that Trump supposedly has it. Those are all coming from Stephen Miller. Steve Miller is shrewd. He's, he's psychotic, which is probably one of the reasons why he hasn't done more, is that he's, he's incredibly uh, paranoid, and he kind of has—he shoots himself in the foot. Otherwise, he could be incredibly dangerous. All right, let's move on. This is a really fun point. I want to talk about m movies for a second. Uh, there are certain movies that I can watch over and over and over and over again. And I never get tired of them. And I'm not embarrassed to tell you that. I think some people would, are embarrassed if you say, how many times have you seen this movie? They go, oh, I don't, I don't know, two? And you know they've seen it 200 times. And they probably have a tattoo on their body somewhere hidden that's in reference to the movie, but they're afraid because it makes them look like they're sitting around doing nothing. I don't care what you think of me if I'm sitting around doing nothing because you know I'm not. Midnight in Paris, Woody, Woody, uh, Woody Allen with Owen Wilson, amongst others, and Almost Famous. I'll start with Midnight in Paris. So Midnight in Paris, if you haven't seen this, it's fantastic. These movies are about good acting, a good script, and a good story. There's no green screen. There's no special effects. There's no car chases. There's none of that stuff. It's just good acting, story, script, location, etc. And Paris, the way that Woody Allen uses Paris in this movie is fantastic. And for, for I don't know many Americans who go, oh, I don't like Paris. Every, all of us love Paris. It's just a different thing. It makes us want to move there. It has such a great literary history. It has a great art history, etc. And I absolutely love this film. I can watch it over and over again. And the same applies for Almost Famous. Almost Famous is loosely based around Cameron Crowe's uh, origins as a journalist. It's about a young kid who's in high school who starts writing about music. He's absolutely infatuated with music, and he accidentally stumbles into an assignment from Rolling Stone. They send him on the road not knowing how old he is, and it is just so well done. It's so well written. It's so well cast. It's just fantastic. Everybody I know loves this movie. 
And there are so many people that love this movie that there are entire subcultures of people who are obsessed with this movie. And there's websites, and there's focus groups, and there's you know people that get together and watch it in festivals that are just about almost famous. It's that good. So if you haven't seen Midnight in Paris, Almost Famous, but there's a line from Almost Famous, it's the reason why I'm bringing this up, that I think applies to any of us who are making creative work, who have sort of invested in creative work at the level that we have. Like in my case, I went to four-year college, I studied it, I sort of dedicated my life to photography for many, for several decades, not anymore, but I, I did for a long time. In the movie, the, the main character, the kid, is talking to someone who is representative of a guy named Lester Bangs, who was one of the writers for Cream Magazine back in the day. And in the movie, he's played by the late Philip Seymour Hoffman. And, and the kid just meets him, and they're walking down the street in San Diego, and, and, and Lester Bangs turns to this kid, and he goes, I used to do speed, you know, and, uh, and a little cough syrup. And then I would just stay up all night writing page after page, pages of drivel about stuff like The Faces or Coltrane, uh, just to fucking write. And that line to me, anyone who is in, who's got the sickness, anyone who's a photographer, a writer, a painter, that does the creative stuff knows exactly what he's talking about. I think about that line all the time, just to fucking write. And hallelujah, in the age of social media, where everybody is doing something to get a pat, fake little phony pat on the back, just to sit there and write for no other reason than the skill and the joy of writing. That, to me, is what we've lost. There is no prize at the end. There's no gold at the end of the rainbow for 99% of what, they, of what we do. And there never will be. But that idea of just doing it. Now, this reminded me. I was on my little hike run earlier, and I was thinking about that line. And I thought, you know what? I used to go in the dark room when I was in, in school. And I, had, I barely had any money at all. And I remember like a role, processing a role of transparency was like I could eat lunch at Uncle Ho's kitchen. Uncle Han's kitchen. Not Uncle Ho. That sounds really bad. But Uncle Han's kitchen, which was this little hole in the wall, like Vietnamese Chinese place that for me to be able to go, my roommate and I would be like, oh my God, we saved enough money. We, you know, we robbed the elderly. Let's go to Uncle Han's. That's where the police would pick us up. And then right next door was this photo lab. We called it back in a scratch because your film just came back demolished all the time. But it was like the same price. One roll of processing for color transparency or eat at Uncle Han's kitchen. And so I didn't have much money, and I would go in the dark room, and there were times where I didn't have anything new to print, but I just went in to print, to smell, and to experiment, and to watch other people's work coming up in the trays, and the dialogue in the dark room, and the music that was on, and it was just about, there's no reward here. This is, this is just what, this is in my blood, and something I'm going to do, and I think one of the best dark, dark room prints I have was done in this cave in San Diego in my friend's dark room where I was, I'd worked all day for Kodak and I was driving home and it was late. It was like 11 PM and I was like, screw it. And I turned off, went into La Jolla, went to my, my buddy's house where his parents lived. I hiked through the dark past their house, down the hillside into the cave. And I started printing at like 11 o'clock at night and my black Pontiac Grand Prix parked up on the street. And I remember I had this negative of Amy and I in Paris, and this was pr prior to selfies being a thing. I had held this phone 
the, the camera, like an M6 with a 35 down at the extension, my arm fully extended, and I shot this picture from below up of us underneath the Eiffel Tower. And I just happened to get this really weird pose from both of us that made this really cool photograph. And I went in the dark room. I put the negative in the, in the carrier, in the enlarger, and then I was like, I just want to play. You know, I don't need a straight print of this. So what I came up with was I put the developer on by hand. So I would put the developer in my hand, and then I would press it onto the paper at varying levels of, of pressure. And the heat from my hand and the varying levels of pressure put an uneven layer of developer on the paper. And then with the other hand, I put on fixer. So I would put the, put the print in the wash and, and the stop bath, and then I would put the fix on by hand. And then as soon as I put the fix on, I would flash the lights on in the darkroom, flash them on and off. And so it turned Kodak Ectolure paper, the same shit that's filled with cadmium that's horrible, which is probably why my immune system is shot. It would turn this purple-brown color, and every print was completely different because, again, it was random. It was my hand and the pressure and the heat from my hand and then the stop and then the random fixer and then the flashing of the lights, which it was, it was, the light was getting through the fix because it wasn't on long enough to protect the print. And then I would fix it and double fix it. And, it, and they're preserved, and they still look great. But that's the, the same thing that Lester Bangs is referring to in the movie, which is just to fucking print. That's the beauty of doing any of this stuff. That's where the good stuff comes from. Okay, uh, quick question here. Point number eight is about filmmaking storage. I need your help on this because I honestly don't know. Imagine me in the van on the road on the hook for making content, writing and shooting stills and producing video. So I've got my MacBook Pro, and I don't have my, my SATA drive system, which is here at home, which is 40 terabytes of 10 terabyte drives, four of them in a bay. That's my primary backup storage and also working drives if I'm here at home. So I don't have that on the road. So I've got to have portable storage. The problem is that the portable storage has to be fast enough to work from the video on. So that typically means the solid state drives like the Samsung. But to get a Samsung drive big enough to handle the, the content that I'd have on a trip, you're gonna, I'm spending like seven or 800 bucks for one of these little drives. And then you don't want to leave this stuff on there because they fill up too quick and then you'd be buying these drives all the time. So I have to have a secondary kind of drive, which is basically like a, what I have now, which is a USB-C five terabyte armored G drive. But is that... Is there a better solution? Like, what the hell am I doing? Because normally when I have work on a drive and I try to run Premiere off of it, I can't, I can't scrub the film. It's too slow. And so, but I'm thinking, that just seems ridiculous. So I go from a Samsung solid-state drive to a 5-terabyte G drive backup, which is just basically like a parking lot for the stuff, until I get home, and then I offload it from that onto my SATA drive system, which is my permanent, so quote-unquote, permanent backup which is, you know, redundant on multiple drives because the drive in the laptop is only 512 gigs, which is too small. It's already, it's less than half available as it is right now. And I have three films on there now, which is that drive's going to be full. So I'm just trying to figure out what the hell do I do here? This seems really bad. Okay. Um, so if you have any suggestions, let me know in the comments because I honestly don't know. And the system I have right now just does, does not seem very intelligent. I just want to talk quickly, the fall of boxing. Um, this past weekend saw two boxing matches that were thoroughly and utterly embarrassing. We saw Mike Tyson, 54 years old, fighting Roy Jones Jr. at 51. 
Both of those guys were insane during their time. I mean, skilled. Roy Jones Jr. was an unbelievable boxer, the skill of boxing. And if you don't think there's skill involved in the sweet science, you're not paying attention or you're just hating on it. There really is. It's like baseball pitching and right hand, left hand, you know, throwing a uh, a change up or a, or a curve or a fastball or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of, of science that goes into it. And boxing is the same. And Tyson was a destroyer. I've never in my life seen anyone like Mike Tyson when he was in his prime. But they are way past their prime. And they fought this quote-unquote exhibition, and it was really sad. I mean, kind of sad and embarrassing. I'm sure they had a good time, and they probably made some money. But oof, as a fan, you're like, wow, you have fallen. Because the UFC has taken over in terms of combat sports. The UFC is so far out in front of boxing, it's not even funny. The other one was even worse. The other boxing match was between a YouTube star who I don't know his name. I can't. I don't even want to look at his name. I don't want to know. He's a YouTube star and a former NBA basketball player. And somehow these guys got on the bill. That tells you how far boxing has fallen. Like, I know people are trying to make a buck, and I know people will do anything to try to make a buck. I get that. And these guys had to train, so I get that too. And maybe they both like boxing, but holy crap, why would you put either one of these on? I mean, it is a novelty. It's a train wreck that you you drive by the auto accident, and 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 you're like, I know I'm going to see something horrible, and I can't stop myself. Or you open a carton of milk, and you go, I think this is sour, and instead of throwing it away, you smell it anyway. And you're like, I knew that was coming, and I did it anyway. That's kind of, I didn't watch either one of these boxing matches, but it kind of, to me, was the last thing I needed to see and hear to know that boxing is completely done because these were the two top fights on the bill okay I think I'm almost done here the last thing I want to talk about is really good is really funny and I know I'm an hour and nine minutes here but this is totally worth it so if you need to take a break restroom break if you're going to shotgun a beer whatever just do it now I have an admission to make I went through a ninja phase let me repeat that I once went through a ninja phase. Ninja, N-I-N-J-A, the Japanese assassin. Yes, when I was in middle school, the ninja phase and the ninja world took over American society. Everything was ninja. You had Enter the Ninja, film number one, with um, Sho Kasuji. And I forget that other guy, that actor, that Caucasian dude that was just... Franco Nero. Franco Nero was the good guy. And Shokasuji was the bad ninja. And I was in middle school, and I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I, too, will be a ninja. And this was right at the end of my elementary school. So, like, fifth grade and sixth grade in middle school. I was like, and I, I would send off for the martial arts magazines. And in the back of the martial arts magazines, you could send away for ninja stuff. And so I wanted a ninja outfit. I wanted the shoes. I wanted nunchucks. I wanted throwing stars. I wanted size. And of course, my parents were brain dead. I w- my parents were like the parent in some ways, were like the parents in in war games. David Lightman's parents, who was mom's, like I think we're all going to get electrocuted, and they were just ignoring him, and he was upstairs hacking the Pentagon. And so my parents were a little bit like that. They were much more involved in my life, but they didn't know what I was doing with this stuff. So I got the ninja shoes, and I got the ninja outfit, and I got throwing stars, which I have then sharpened to make them even more deadly. And I got nunchucks. Now, I made a huge mistake on the nunchucks. I got the nunchucks with the chain in the middle and not the cord. The chain is horrible. Get the cord. Because when you're flinging those things around, your hand gets caught in the chain and your neck gets caught in the chain. It pinches you. They look cool, but they suck. 
And if you're going to, if you're going to whoop ass and take on like a, a, a bunch of bad people or people that you just you want to take on, you just, you want nunchucks that are functional and uh, throwing stars. There were, there were fights in my middle school with people at school during the day that included nunchucks and throwing stars. That's how much ninja had taken over. Ninja culture took over American culture. We were more Japanese during this time frame than we were American. I mean, I was like bowing to my parents and, uh, and, and they just took it in stride. They were like, whatever, he, you know, must be a school project. But I literally saw fights in my middle school. I once saw a fight with about 10 kids who were in middle school and 10 construction workers in the middle of campus, in the middle of the day. And it was like a little, the kids were part of a martial arts gang and they had nunchucks and were throwing, throwing stars at the construction workers. This was my middle school. And you wonder why my education is not better. Why my test scores were not better. Why was I drunk during the SAT? Now you know, because this was a daily thing in my school. And actually one of the teachers that I saw watching this fight um, he got beat up in front of me uh, at the bus stop. It's pretty amazing by two kids who went away and never came back. So this te- I'm going to tell you something about this that went so far beyond what you're going to possibly believe. So I was like, I think I am a ninja now. I've seen enough. I've seen Enter the, Enter the Ninja with Shokasuji 35 times. And I think I have now officially become a ninja. And I would literally smear my face in mud, put on this ninja outfit. Again, fifth grade. All right, so cut me some slack here. And I would sneak into my neighbor's house, all right? This is in Texas, right? You sneak into someone's house in Texas, and you're going to get vaporized. That, that typically is what's going to happen, is you're going to take a 12-gauge to the chest, probably, without many questions at all. And the cops, if they show up, are going to be like, well, dumbass, you snuck into their house. So I would sneak into my neighbor's house at night and then wait and hide for them. And then when they came by, I would like jump out and try to do ninja shit to them. That tells you how far into the ninja phase I was. And this is even before the, the transcendent being of all human beings, Michael Dudikoff, came on the scene. Michael Dudikoff was the main actor in American Ninja. And there was like American Ninja 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. There's probably a hundred of these films. They were, you could not make a bad American Ninja. And I was like, God, if Dudikoff's doing it, and Shokasuji, and Franco Nero, and you know, and the original like Enter the Ninja, it was kind of that like residue of the '70s with the sexy. There was always the sexy female lead, and like the Nero had like the chest hair and the baggy pants. And at the time, people were like, Wow, that's amazing. And I was one of those people. And I just had to, uh, I had to get this off my chest that you know, you might look at me now as a, as a sophisticate. You might look at me now as an intellectual, as someone who is refined and has their system and everything in his life is like, God, he's, a, he's perfect. His life is perfect. But I actually, I had a ninja phase. And um, I, the other day, I had a little, a little ping in my heart, a little pang for that time frame. And I was, I was sitting at home daydreaming about what would happen if, the, if like zombie mink or you know, our society really goes bad and, and people come and try to get us. And I was like, I'm not worried at all because I can flip on that ninja part of me easily. I mean, in seconds, because it was so ingrained. Like I said, American culture was more Japanese than American during that entire time. And uh, I'm not embarrassed. I wanted to share it. And I think maybe some of you out there had ninja tendencies. And um, I just thought I'd put it out there. So that was an hour and 15 minutes, and uh, I've got to go. 
because I've got really important stuff to do, like sharpen my size. And uh, not my thighs, my size. Very different. And uh, anyway, I hope you guys are well. I hope everyone is having a decent day wherever you are in the world. And uh, I will hopefully be back next week. I am headed off tomorrow, uh, Saturday, to work on a very short project and a short film about sandhill cranes, which is something, if you're from here in New Mexico, you'll know what I'm talking about. Very interesting bird. I have to spend the weekends making stills and footage and writing because if I don't, then I don't have anything to produce films during the week. And then during the week, I'm doing all the stuff, the blurb stuff that I've already told you about. So it's pretty much a seven-day-a-week thing now producing content, but I am not complaining. It's a lot of fun. It's great exploring the world and I'm learning a lot, making a ton of mistakes and, uh, and trying to get better. So I hope you are too. And for my friends out there, hopefully I will see you in 2021. And for my new acquaintances out there, I hope you're well as well. And I hope you find something interesting here and I will talk to you next week.